Coming up on today's show, if you're out Christmas shopping and you see something that might make a good gift, buy it. Buy it now. With the way the supply chain is, you may not have another chance. Benefits for businesses during the pandemic, they're about to expire fairly soon, a lot of them. And business groups are saying, no, 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 you can't pull the plug just yet. We still need that support. We'll have that discussion. And if you've been to a restaurant recently, you know the menu is probably a QR code. Are there security concerns? Uh, Full disclosure, I'm one of these guys who doesn't like talking about holidays too early. I don't think you should talk about Halloween until at least October. I've got neighbors, their yard is completely decorated with Halloween stuff and has been since mid-September. To me, that's Russian things. Same thing when it comes to Christmas. December, maybe even after Thanksgiving, you know, give us two months. Um, Fine, go all out. But it seems we just get earlier and earlier every year when we're rushing into Halloween or we're rushing into Christmas or whatever the case may be. Um, And I know people get all wrapped up in it. It's big, big business. I mean, there's a Halloween store on every corner now starting in August. uh, And you know what happens around the Christmas season. This year, though, is different. And we're going to be talking about Christmas shopping and doing it early. And there's very, very good reason. If you're out shopping now and you see something that might make a good gift for somebody, it's highly recommended that you pick it up. Because if you don't and somebody else does, it may not be back in stores when you want it. That's how tight things are in terms of the supply chain. So let's get some details on what's happening. We're going to chat with Zachary Rogers, who is an assistant professor of supply chain management at Colorado State University. Dr. Rogers, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks. It's good to be here. You know, I agree with you on the uh, don't talk about holidays. <laughs> I think supply chain, though, and maybe the Hallmark movie channel might disagree with us, but yeah. I'm on the same page as you. Yeah, they're, they're doing Christmas movies year-round on that Hallmark channel. Oh, yeah, Christmas in July. <laughs> it's, it's big business, and I understand that. I think for a lot of people, uh, some people are shopping year-round. I understand that. But for a lot of people, it's sort of like, I'll worry about that maybe in November, probably in December, I'll start thinking about it. That could be a really big mistake this year, right? A lot of the things that you might want to find in December may not be there. Oh, absolutely. And and a lot of firms are struggling with that already. You know, supply chains have really been built on the idea that you can get things from, say, China to the west coast of North America in about, you know, somewhere between 20 and 30 days. And that the costs associated with those are, are somewhat affordable, like, you know, a 40-foot container generally going across the Pacific Ocean is going to run you $1,800, $1,900 uh, U.S. Right now, a container going from China to the west coast of North America is going to cost somewhere around $20,000. What? Okay, so yeah, it's essentially gone up by 10 times. So now if you think about that, the value of the goods inside your average 40-foot container is about $50,000 to $100,000. So if we go then from 2 to 20, then we've gone from maybe 4% of the value of the goods, is just the price of the box going across the water, to today it's closer to 40 45%. Um, and so not only are things going to be coming slower because of the crunch, because of this crazy rush to get things in as fast as we can, and, you know, spoiler alert, we're not going to be able to get things in fast <laughs> enough, we will see some uh, some sort of inflation baked into many of the consumer goods, I think, this year. Okay, let's back up and talk about why is it like this? Why is this supply chain, and essentially we're talking about shipping in, in, in large regard to yeah. what this is about, why is it so different in, in such a short amount of time? Is, is it all pandemic-related? That's a big piece of it. A big piece of it is, is, is the pandemic. So, you know, supply chains are really built 
to sort of be perpetual motion machines. And there's not a lot of excess capacity. So it's not something where we say, oh, those are our emergency 25,000 TEU uh, cargo ships or our emergency port terminals that normally we don't use, but we can flex them on, you know, when demand is high. Those are so expensive. All of the capital investment you need for international supply chains, because the scale is so large, is so expensive that essentially what every, uh, every supply chain tries to have is just exactly as much capacity as they need. Well, during the pandemic, essentially everything shut down for about uh, six days, or sorry, sorry, six, six months. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. Like, if you look at something like the Port of Los Angeles, mm-hmm. on an average day, average non-pandemic, non-crisis mode day, there should be, you know, 12 ships uh, probably in, in the dock and maybe a few ships waiting outside in the port. Well, for most of the summer of 2020 and, and even in the early fall of 2020, there was three, four ships because, you know, China shut down first and then North America shut down. It was sort of a, a rolling shutdown. Yeah. Well, today there's 73 ships <laughs> that are sitting in the, the, the San Pedro Bay, and most of them are just sitting there doing nothing. You know, on average, maybe you have to wait two days out in the water before you can get to the dock and get unloaded. I get a, a, an email from the, uh, the Port of Los Angeles every day with a rolling 30-day average of how long ships are waiting. And right now it's about 10 days. And that number has gone up dramatically, which tells you that in the last couple of weeks it's probably actually closer to 11 or 12 days that ships are waiting to be unloaded. And so essentially what happened is we got behind. We got behind during the crunch of the pandemic, and now we're struggling to catch up. And we just don't have the capacity to both catch up for lost time as well as cover the demand mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's currently building right now. Um, and this touches all sectors, right? I mean, it, it basically, Absolutely. because it may, maybe you don't need your product shipped, but you need a component to your product ship. So there's really mm-hmm. nobody that's escaping this. Absolutely. You know, Toyota outsourced General, outsold General Motors in the U.S. for the first time ever in the second quarter of 2021. And it's not because preferences change by the consumers. It's because Toyotas were available and GM cars were not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that it all comes down to semiconductors, where Toyota sort of saw into the future a little bit and stockpiled a bunch of semiconductors ahead of time. General Motors, Ford did not. And so they didn't have any inventory to sell. You know, Ford is going to take uh, a $2.4 billion, you know, uh, revisement down in earnings because they just have whole parking lots full of trucks totally built sitting there. They have the body of the truck, but they don't have the brain because they don't have yeah. the, uh, the semiconductors. And it's so interesting, by the way, that it's Toyota that did that because Toyota is sort of famous for just-in-time inventory, which is kind of how supply chains have always worked. Just in time. We'll have everything just when you need it to be as efficient as possible. But by buying semiconductors ahead of time, really they move from just in time to just in case. And that's the reality that we see a lot of companies taking right now where, hey, we're just going to build up as much as we can because who knows? Who knows when the next ship is going to come across the water? Best Buy, for example, is claiming they already have all of the electronics they're going to need all the way through Christmas. And now that's not an efficient way to run a supply chain because that means you have a lot of stuff in your warehouses, but they think it's the only way that they're going to hit the customer service levels they need to hit this, uh, this Q4. And that takes us back to costs. So they're paying more for shipping costs. They're paying more for warehousing costs to have this on hand. Ultimately, the cost continues to go up as they try and find ways to navigate their way through this. 
Absolutely. I think last time I was here, we, we mentioned that I, I put out an index every month called yeah. the Logistics Managers Index. And the September index will come out next Tuesday, but I was just running the numbers. So I can actually, this is breaking news. This is Excellent. the first time anybody's going to hear what they are. <laughs> but uh, so the warehousing uh, price metrics is at an 89 right now. And just to remind listeners, it's a scale that goes from zero to 100. So the closer to 100 you are, the greater the level of growth. That 89 that we have for warehouse price is the highest number we've ever had in the history of the of the index. Wow. And it's because so much inventory is being stored, um, and it doesn't really – it can't really move that quickly. You know, I, I'm seeing things like the, the Biden administration saying, hey, let's run the ports 24 hours a day. Well, in theory, that's a good idea, and it might clear some ships out of the bay, but then all of this inventory isn't going to have anywhere to go. It, it's sort of like running through one red light and then coming right up to a, another red light right after it. Because inventory can get through, but then uh, warehouse occupancy right now is about 98 to 99% in most of the major industrial hubs in North America. And the rail lines, I mean, there's 25-mile traffic jams in Chicago trying to get uh, goods across the country. So it's not real. Even if you get through the docks, it's not like things are going to get to the shelves really quickly because of all the congestion in the supply chains and the lack of capacity. And, you know, when we're talking about this supply chain, Doc, we're, you're, it, it's all interconnected, right from sourcing the raw materials mm-hmm. for your product to building your product to shipping your product to warehousing it to retailing it. They all have to work together and a snag in one area. Like you say, you run through that red light and you run smack into another one. Absolutely. You know, that the outbreaks in Vietnam that have happened over the last couple months, are going to mean that there's essentially half of the Nike shoes <laughs> yeah. that Nike would like to have on, on shelves uh, on shelves this, this Christmas. So if, if you have a kid who's really into basketball or something, I would get those now because <laughs> there's not going to be more coming soon. What's the timeline? I mean, we, we talked about this, I think it was a couple of months ago when we were in a bad spot. It seems to have gotten worse. Is there an end in sight here, or is this just going to take a long time to sort of get back to where it used to be? Well, it will take quite a while. You know, really, we sort of jumped ahead uh, in terms of our need for capacity, maybe two or three years uh, past where we where we should have gone in 2020. So we, we sort of jumped forward into the future a little bit. Mm-hmm. And like I said, supply chains are built to be very lean. And something like a big container ship might take three years, four years to put together. Or, or the trucks and the trains that we need. Ironically, the big 53-footer trucks that we need to move goods around that would actually relieve a lot of this tension. We have record orders for them right now, but in July we produced the lowest number we've produced since the pandemic started, and again, it comes down to not having semiconductors. And so it turns into this negative feedback loop where because we don't have enough logistics capacity, we can't get semiconductors over here, but because we, don't, we can't get semiconductors over here, we can't build up our logistics capacity. And so it's kind of, you know, I would say probably 2023 is when maybe we could really start to dig out of this and make, make significant improvements. Wow. It's, it just takes a while, though. Patience, patience. And if you see something that you like, get it, because it may not be Absolutely. there next time. Okay. Well, and everyone has a loose return policy now, so don't even worry about it. Even <laughs> if you only think you might like it, just go exactly. for it. If it doesn't work out, just take it back. Doc, always appreciate the insight. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been fun. Yeah, Dr. Zachary Rogers, who is an assistant professor of supply chain management at Colorado State University, he was mentioning Nike 
uh, and their sneakers. And yeah, uh, that's one of the things that people talk about. Bikes, apparently you haven't been able to get a bike for a really, really long time. And of course, so many people talking about vehicles. Um, it's just, you drive by car lots and the inventory to this day is still very, very low in a lot of cases. So taking a look at the situation across the country, it varies depending on where you are. As we know, Alberta and Saskatchewan, right on our heels, dealing with uh, continued problems trying to get through this fourth wave. Other jurisdictions aren't seeing the same sort of issues that we are. They're in much better positions. And, you know, and that translates around the world. Some places are doing better than others. And, you know, it's all tied to vaccination rates, largely. Um, and, you know, public health measures and when they're put in and when they're taken off. And we can second-guess all that sort of stuff. But the fact of the matter is, um, businesses have been through hell for over 18 months now, you know, especially some specific sectors like hospitality, where they've been open, they've been closed, they can do this, they can't do that. It's been tough. Um, And the government has all kinds of support programs in place to try and help them through this and have for a long, long time now. Uh, Wage subsidies, subsidies. Uh, rent deferrals, all these sorts of things. Uh, A lot of those programs are scheduled to end, though, very, very soon. October 23rd for some, 27th for some. A lot of those programs are scheduled to be going away. They've been extended once, and now there's a lot of businesses and business groups saying, you know what, we need to extend them some more. We're not done with this just yet. So to get some information on what we're talking about here, we have Dan Kelly, who is the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Dan, thanks for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Sorry, I forgot to push the button. Hi, Dan. (laughs) I'm happy to be with you. Um, Okay, so let's just uh, get the lay of the land here, first of all. What programs are in place right now that are scheduled to be gone within the next month or so that you're talking about? Yeah, some some big worries. There have been a variety of federal and provincial supports, as you cited, uh, from really from the outset, others that developed in more recent months. But many, some of them have already been closed. Others are in the process of being closed. So provincial support programs, Alberta had a few. Those have ended. Uh, the federal government had a, a loan program, the CBA loan program, as it was called. That has now ended. Uh, and and the two biggest programs, the wage subsidy and the rent subsidy, uh, they are rapidly being phased out. Uh, they were expected to end by the end of September. That was renewed right prior to the election till the end of October. Uh, but they're disappearing. And uh, we're deeply, deeply worried that these programs are not going to be able to support businesses at the, just as new restrictions uh, like passport requirements are yeah. popping up in provinces like Alberta's. Yeah, and those are the two big ones, right? The wage subsidy, of course, is meant to get people to, uh, businesses to hire more people to bring them back. The government will pay a certain portion of the wage for new hires, essentially, correct? That's right. If, if, you, if you keep staff on, on board, you can get, <clears throat> uh, you were able to get up to 75% of their wages to a maximum uh, paid by the federal government, depending on the amount of business loss that you were experiencing. I just want to be clear here. This is the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm quite upset that the government is phasing these out, is that the programs essentially phase themselves out. If your business is not experiencing revenue losses, you don't, get, you don't qualify for the program. The only businesses get any money from the programs are those that are experiencing a loss in sales, and it's commensurate with that loss in sales. If you, if you have a tiny loss, you get a tiny subsidy. A giant loss, you get a pretty big one. Uh, but that's being phased out. The same is true of rent. 
Uh, rent could be subsidized by the federal government, and that is now being phased out, also to end by by late October. Now, as you say, we've seen a lot of things change over the course of the last year, year and a half. Um, things are continuing to change day by day. When we take a look at you know the the business community in Canada, are different sectors affected differently still at this point? I mean, obviously, when we talk about, like you say, the certification, the vaccine programs, that really hits hospitality hard. Are, are there certain sectors that are really in more danger if these programs go away than others? Yes, the sectors that are that are right now being hardest hit are those where people come together. So, as you said, hospitality. So, uh, restaurants would be uh, part of that. The tourism industry more broadly, uh, but arts and entertainment businesses. So, theaters. Uh, theaters, nightclubs, anywhere where where bowling alleys, anywhere where people come together, uh, they either have capacity restrictions in some provinces, only able to serve perhaps up to 50% of their former capacity, and that's the case in, in Ontario, or they have uh, screening procedures where they have to screen out unvaccinated customers, or both. And and as a result of that, they're seeing further losses in sales, further restrictions to their business uh, at a time when people naturally are, as we move into the fall, are a little bit hesitant, given the fourth wave, to, to get out. Mm-hmm. So as a result of that, all sorts of businesses, and not just those. I mean, look, government officials are now back to telling people to stay at home uh, and, and to be cautious once again. As a result of that, businesses are seeing significant losses, not because they've made bad business decisions, but because governments are taking actions uh, to protect society, and those come with a, a pretty high cost for the business community. Now, Dan, the Trudeau government, of course, re-elected uh, just last week. Uh, he has said throughout that he will be there to support Canadians and Canadian businesses, whatever it takes. And he did say during the election campaign, they've extended these programs once, and they are looking to extend some of them to the spring, right? So is that the job now to try and hold them to what they have promised? Yeah, so the, the government, to its credit, the Liberal Party, did say that they would extend the wage and the rent subsidy for the tourism industry until uh, until uh, to get them through the winter, mm-hmm. they also promised to expand a and extend a hiring subsidy, not the wage subsidy, but one to to encourage businesses to hire new people. And they've they've announced that they will extend that until the end of March of 2022. Both of those are good moves, but it isn't just the tourism industry that needs support. There are all sorts of businesses that are struggling to get their customers back together, either because of restrictions or because customers are choosing to stay home. And they're going to need some help. If we want these businesses to be around when the pandemic is truly over, we need to extend these programs until all of the pandemic restrictions are lifted. And that means borders reopen to both vaccinated and unvaccinated Americans and international tourists. It means that uh, that there's no capacity controls in businesses and rules that require you to screen out unvaccinated people. When those things go away, that's when businesses, I think, we can start to phase out these these subsidy programs, but not before. Yeah, so you'd, it's not like you're saying this needs to be done indefinitely. We know they've been extended once, and you know what people are going to say. We can't continue to prop up businesses. I mean, how long can this go on for? But you're saying, you know, there are some definable qualifiers that we can put in and say, you know what, once this happens and businesses are allowed to operate full bore, we don't need these programs. You're not saying this is indefinite, right? Absolutely not. Look, I mean, business subsidies are stupid. <laughs> subsidies subsidizing businesses long term makes no sense of whatsoever. Uh, paying with tax dollars to keep businesses alive if they're in a dying industry, 
or they're struggling or they've made bad business decisions, that doesn't make, that doesn't help at all. Mm-hmm. What what but what we can't do is to say to businesses, sorry, because we have to protect society from COVID, we're not going to allow you to serve your customers in the way that you're used to. You're going to have to limit that in some significant ways, but you're on your own. If we do that, these businesses are going to disappear. The jobs that they create will disappear. It'll have a massive effect. And and gosh, even on the you know, you think about this from a retail setting. So all we're going to have left, Walmart and, and Amazon, I mean, we need these local small businesses that create jobs in local communities in good times and in bad uh, to stick around. And if we don't do that, we're really, really running the risk of creating uh, just an awful environment for, for, for Canadians. Well, Dan, I appreciate you giving us uh, your case here today, and uh, we'll follow this along and uh, follow up with you down the road. Thanks very much. Appreciate it very much. That's Dan Kelly who is president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. If you've been to a restaurant, you've seen this. I think I'm going to say 95% of the times I've been out to a restaurant in the past several months, they have this. And they brought them in through the course of the pandemic because they didn't want to be handing menus from one customer to the next and they had to wipe them down and blah, blah, blah. And on they went. So basically what they came up with is a QR code. It's a sticker that you see smack right on the table. You walk in, you take out your phone, you pull out your camera, boom. And the menu opens up on your phone. It's slick. It's convenient. There's no question about it. It's so convenient that I'm almost positive that most restaurants will continue with this after the pandemic is over. If the pandemic is over or when the pandemic is over. We'll continue to see this because, you know, it it saves costs for them and on and on. What about any, we're always concerned now with privacy and security, especially when we're scanning things like that and using different systems. Do we need to have concerns about these? To find out, we're going to chat with Yuan Stevens, who's a cybersecurity expert at Ryerson University. Yuan, thanks for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Hello, happy to be here. Okay, so let's talk about uh, these QR codes. First of all, how do they work? I mean, it, what? it's just basically opening a web link on your phone, is it not? Yeah, so QR codes are a type of barcode, and uh, they were created in the 90s by a person in Japan. And they're a machine-readable code that can store significantly more information than a traditional barcode because information is stored horizontally and vertically. Mm -hmm. So you can use them for business purposes. It's not just for opening websites. But, yeah, they're really a machine-readable code. And, you you know, a lot of phones didn't used to have the capability of reading them. But then in the last several years, you know, iPhones, Android, et cetera, have um, you know, been updated so that we can actually scan these codes with um, our camera. So, I mean, is it any different than you going, opening up Safari or whatever browser you have on your phone, Google Chrome, whatever, and typing in the um, restaurant's website? Is it any different than that? Does it access anything else differently? Well, what's different is you have an intermediary. You have this uh, sort of door, if you will, though that's not a great metaphor. But a QR code is something, it's like a portal that takes you somewhere. Okay. And every time you use uh, technology to make your life easier, you're going to have a trade-off. So um, and URLs themselves are, uh, are you know, it's sort of, you can, you can even understand them as a type of technology, but they don't often have, you know, more than one purpose. They're right. really just like an address. But QR codes are both an address and also a conduit to get to your destination. Um, what that means is that, uh, you know, they're not, you, you can actually, uh, 
right now a lot of them aren't centralized, but it could be possible that a provider of um, a QR code could potentially store data on any QR codes that they provide that are scanned. So all that to say is that, you know, with each new layer of technology comes risks. Exactly, yeah. So when we scan a QR code, what kind of information potentially um, are we handing over? I mean, how far how far does it go? What can they access when we scan these codes? Yeah, so I, you know, the I'll focus for now on the the restaurants who can who use QR codes. Um, I'm not going to wade into too much of the hypothetical around the creators of QR codes themselves and any sort of company that's selling QR codes because that's something you know I don't know too much about that and it remains fairly hypothetical. Mm. But when you do scan a QR code at a restaurant, um, then, you know, restaurants are going to have, have the potential to have a lot more of your information than if you were just holding a, a menu. And that's because when you use a QR code, you visit it from a browser and it shows your IP address, it shows your geographic location, it shows, it shows information about your device, it shows your screen size. These are things that restaurants or anyone who uses a, or who provides a QR code, you know, these are, this is information that they can access. Um, and so, I, you know, it's, it's true that for now, QR codes are fairly benign, but it is really important to be careful because of the potential right. risks that they pose to us, including the potential for um, injection into, and, well, I'll get there in a second, but yeah, they, it, I'll just say it's hypothetical, but it, there are some risks. Yeah, so at this point, we're not talking about um, them being able to access any sort of personal identity features or financial information or anything like that. It's basically just tracking who you are, where you are, and what device you're using. Yeah, exactly. It's like the data about who you are. It's not necessarily your name or um, that kind of thing. What can they do with that? Well, uh, when, you know, now that restaurants are increasingly going to have access to our our digital information, um, it definitely means that it'll change some practices to some extent. So it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if restaurants could change their prices more easily because their menus are digital. They could also put certain things at the top of their menu or website because they'd want you to buy that. So we do have to be careful of the fact that um, our, inform- our, our, you know, our behavior could be nudged a bit because of us using uh, digital menus. So much like social media, they'll track what you have shown a preference for before and then feed you that information. Exactly. Oh, and another thing is that QR codes are also being used for uh, contact tracing, at least in in Quebec where I live. And uh, that is significant because, you know, you're not giving your information to, um, you know, the QR code itself, but you're giving your information via a QR code to the person who's running whatever website or platform they direct you to. So that's another thing we need to be careful of is that QR codes could be falsified and you could be taken either to a completely obviously um, different website or, or app even um, that wants to have your, like where the person who created that wants to take your information or a really smart uh, hacker who has malicious intent could take you to a website that looks like the website that you thought you would be visiting right. and then take your information that way. Oh, man. And again, this all comes down to consent. I guess basically just by opening your camera and taking a shot of the QR code, you're implying your consent, right? Like nobody's asking you when you go to the restaurant if you consent to doing this. Consent really matters, but if you also think you're consenting to one thing, but then you actually something else happens, then it would make sense to me that... Uh, 
that you wouldn't necessarily be responsible because you thought that you were engaging in something that wasn't going to take advantage of you. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, like I said, these aren't going away. We're seeing them more and more. And I imagine restaurants love this. It makes things easier for the staff. It makes it cheaper for them to operate. This is something we're going to have to get used to, I think, going forward, right? I think so. I, I If I were a restaurant owner, I would absolutely, you know, be using a QR code. And I see that they're being used for, um, they've already been in use at places like art galleries, where maybe you want to learn a little bit more yep. about the art. And then another thing I think we may need to be careful of is that QR codes can be used for payment. So in, in, in China, um, having done research on this, um, 85% of people use QR codes through their digital wallet to pay for things in 2020, mm-hmm. which actually increased from, 60, from 6% in 2019. And they, what they do is they use things like Alipay or WeChat Pay. Um, the equivalent to this in Canada, we would know this to be like PayPal, for example. So you can actually put money into your PayPal wallet and then pay with a QR, a QR code. And knowing, you know, if we're going to pay with QR codes, that is going to be something that will also pose risks as much as it will, as much as it'll make our lives easier. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the convenience always comes with the risk. Thank you for walking us through it. I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Happy to be here. That is... Yuan Stevens, who is a cybersecurity expert at Ryerson University. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.